Welcome to the Courage to Lead interview series for leaders who empower others to create supportive and inclusive workplaces where people can do their absolute best. Each week I will interview a leader who epitomizes the ability to empower others to lead and create amazing workplaces, environments and communities because of that skill. In these interviews I try as much as possible to let our guests do all the talking as they are the stars and not me. I trust you enjoy the lessons and wisdoms each guest shares and if you're like me, listen to the interviews a number of times to capture some of the true gems of leadership we hear each week. Welcome to the Courage Lead interview series. Our next guest, Scott Chapman, the CEO for the Royal Flying Doctor Service in Victoria and he's held that position for the last 14 years. Scott has a massive CV which I will put in the show notes because it's too big to read out, a result of Scott's self-confessed ability to get excited about too many things, hence his position on so many boards. Scott has a passion for outdoor adventures and will explore some of that in this interview. He abides by the saying, if you feel blue, touch green, and green can mean nature, the sun, the rain, or the cold. People and communities are his common themes throughout this interview and are his hot buttons for the jobs that he absolutely loves. And he believes in his core that people want to do the right thing. And he says he's very rarely been bitten by this attitude to hiring people. Scott hires people on attitude and not skills. He advises his people, who he leads, not to get the best people, but do get the best fit Otherwise, you are managing the conflicts that people who don't fit bring with them into your workplace. Another favourite saying that Scott has throughout this interview is, don't tell me why we can't, tell me how we can. And he's a master of doing things differently. This interview will go through his, his whole of his career, but finishes on his current position, where he's the CEO of the Royal Flying Doctor Service of Victoria. And when he took on that job after being um, uh, not having his contract renewed for his last job, his first day at work as the CEO of fundraising or the chairman of fundraising, when he went into work after having high powered jobs in his previous life, he met with the five part-time people that made up his new role. 14 years later, the Royal Flying Doctor Service of Victoria now has 700 staff, one airplane, 120 ambulances, and a thriving business model. Scott's very proud to talk about their culture and the fact that under his leadership, they've created 500 new jobs in country Victoria and the impact that that has on families and communities and the responsibility that brings with bringing that kind of outcome to families and communities. Scott closes this interview with two recommendations for, for leaders. The first recommendation is build strong relationships where you can have a genuine discussion depending on the depth of the relationship. And he says that two elements in a genuine conversation, your intention is pure and you believe it at the time to be true. And the other thing he leaves us with is the difference between a manager and a leader. A manager manages the known, and a leader needs to be comfortable in the gray because that's where they operate all the time.
Welcome to the Courage to Lead interview series. Our next and very special guest, Scott Chapman, the Chief Executive Officer of the Royal Flying Doctor Service in Victoria. And what I've recently, when I've got prepared for this interview, I, I normally don't do a big CV, but I think we should highlight this straight off, is um, Scott's just been awarded the 2023 Melbourne Achiever Award um, for the by the Committee of, of Melbourne, which um, includes the Governor and the, the Mayor of Melbourne. So congratulations to you, Scott. Welcome to the show. Good. Thanks, Alan. It was a bit of a shock, but uh, you take it when you can get it. And uh, it, was a, it was a great night to, uh, to stand up in front of 700 contemporaries. And uh, for once, they clapped me rather than me clapping them. Yeah, that's a beautiful acknowledgement. Um, and I don't think I've ever seen... Yeah, when I go into your LinkedIn profile, the, the your current and recent activities at a director and kind of committee level, um, uh, a chair of you know all these different um, boards and that kind of stuff. It's it's huge. So I'm really looking forward to this. So let, the the beauty of these interviews is I don't do the talking; the guest does the talking. So the mm. first two the first two questions that I'll give you um, that every guest gets is. Um, what was your first true ever experience of leadership? And it can be as a five-year-old five or it can be even yesterday. It's a very good question. And uh, I guess it takes me back to uh, uh, joining the local uh, the local Cubs. And um, and somehow I ended up as, geez, I can't even remember what they were called. Oh, sixers, that's right. A sixer, which was like a little patrol leader. I think it was called a sixer because you had six other kids in your uh, in your group and uh so that was at uh, the first albert park cubs uh and we went away on a snow uh, weekend and uh i just remember um uh, being up at mount borbor i suppose i can't remember where it was it was tobogganing uh you took your own you know wooden made toboggan <laughs> that your dad had made yeah. uh, it was dangerous as anything um and uh and uh one kid got lost i remember um uh his name was joe and uh we needed to go and search for him and uh, i remember organizing my six in a pattern that i must have seen somewhere to walk <laughs> 20 meters apart i can't even remember what it was like but uh we didn't find him someone else did i think he was in the toilets or someone somewhere but uh I just remember thinking, well, you know, here I am and I'm in charge of these guys and we've got a job to do. And I, I took the responsibility very, uh, you know, very, very strongly, I guess. How old were you then? I would have been uh, seven. Well, it's yeah, uh, yeah. a big deal. Is it, uh, is that, uh, yeah, searching is a, is a really responsible thing. Yeah, well done. Good stuff. <laughs> and, and, Joe, and Joe was found in the toilet. Yeah, he was inside. <laughs> So, uh, but uh, but no no we're out there. I was you know I was um, I was so, I was a hero in my own mind already. Yeah, good good. I love I love the name Joe. I read a book recently where every 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 group has a Fred. Or in your case, you had a Joe. It was a Joe. <laughs> yep. All right. And the second question then, just these are little icebreakers. Is um, what's something about Scott Chapman that no one knows? Rikies. Um. I've had a life in, in, in outdoor and outdoor adventure um, and I've often thought back to you know, how did I get into that because my parents weren't into it and none of my friends. But I do remember, and again, um, you know, living in Middle Park. So we, you know, I was born in, in you know, Middle Park in, in Melbourne 
And uh, I used to, uh, I, I found an old knapsack that uh, that Dad had in the shed, and I'd put um, clothes in it, I'd, and, I'd, and I'd hang pots and pans off of it, and uh, and I'd walk with determination out the front gate and turn right and go around the block and come back in the back uh, the back lane through the back gate. And I always thought that I was on an adventure and people thought I was on an adventure. Um, you know, I haven't told that to anybody. <laughs> but uh, I guess it's just part of, you know, kids and, and you know, and who, who would have known back then that it kind of led to a life that had lots of adventure in it. It's pretty beautiful, actually. So um, I can I can picture I can picture it in my mind because you see it on old TV shows and old cartoons that the pots and pans hanging off the backpack. Well, um, I, I thought that's what you did. You know, the more stuff you had hanging off, the more you know, the more remote you must have been, or the the more of a bush person you were. But uh, clearly, something had gotten into my psyche about being in the bush. It's interesting. A lot of the different leaders we have on the show, they they talk about um, creativity. And you and 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 so you you started. How old were we then when you were doing these walks? Yeah, probably about the same age. I mean, I, I lived at uh, I lived there from the age of six to the age of nine. So it would have been somewhere in in there before we we moved over to New Zealand for Dad's work for a few years and then came back. Okay. Well, as I said to you um, before you started this interview, and anyone that listens to these interviews um, know what happens next. I'm in your hands. So you have this. Um, and you've kind of given us the seed already. You've you've had this life of adventure in the outdoors. Um, so and and we we we've already taken this there as between six and nine years old. You were imagining that you wanted to be this adventurer. Um, so how does this happen? Where do you want to start, well, and exactly. where do you want to take us? Yeah, yeah. No, look, it's uh, and look, it's great great opportunity to have a chat. Not that you spend a lot of time talking about yourself usually, but. Um, uh, to, to try and focus back on, um, on I guess how I got to, to, to here now. I um I was always involved in in, in outdoor stuff. I love being outdoors. I, I have a personal philosophy now, which is around the you know feel blue, touch green. You know if you if you're not feeling good, get outside and and just have you know experience nature or the sun or even the rain and the cold. I, I love all types of weather. Um, but uh, it was it was a you know we I went to seven seven primary schools um, we moved around a bit and we always bought a, a house in a new place and a new school will be built closer so you get rezoned and uh, I guess through that period I learned two things one is I guess resilience and relying on yourself always being the new boy in the school uh, but the other was to um, you know to to be able to get on with people and connect very quickly and I did that I guess through just through survival just the need. And I've always had the need to have a best friend or one or two best friends rather than a whole group of friends. Um, uh, and I know I've always told my kids that, you know, one of the, the most important things you can have is uh, is somebody else in the world who thinks you're, you know, you're written a bit basically um, in a relationship, in a friendship. So um, I've always pushed that. So after um, over to New Zealand for three years and you know, dad worked for a biscuit company, and had this you know, Nabisco it was, and uh, he set up Nabisco over there, and we came back again. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, then just to a normal high school. You know, I'm the oldest of three boys, so you know, mum was the the one out and um, the butt of lots of jokes. And uh, when I think back, you know, you know, it was probably bullying if you if you want to call it in today's terms. But uh, 
but uh, in reality, I, I guess you ruled the roost uh, as being the uh, the only female. Um, they do. That's right. And then we moved out. We, and, uh, this was always inner city living in a way until we moved out to um, out to the outer suburbs. And uh, I remember going from a, a very um, uh, I didn't know it was called culture then, but it was you know inner city living where you knew the people next door. We were living in in a house that um, that mum and dad owned, and, and and to get on, we're talking about you know back in the 60s, there were four families each in a flat each inside of a big um, Victorian terrace house, but there was only one bathroom, and the toilet was actually in the bathroom. So between four families, it was uh, it was interesting. Um, and we moved, and you know, the lady next door, she was, uh, she, well, she had a bit of a challenge with, with the drink, and um, you know, yeah. I remember going over there and, and collecting beer bottles to, and all those sort of things that you know, a fairly rich, um, inner city uh, life can uh, can give. And then we decided that this is not the place to bring up three boys. It was before it was all gentrified, and we went out to the cultural wastelands of. Uh, of Templestowe, you know, the outer suburbs where it was, you know, lots of apple orchards and, and um, uh, you know, suburban housing, but you were so far from anything, you know, just a local yeah. shop. Yep. And, uh, again, from that I learned something when I was, uh, and I'll come to it later on, but when I was working at the city of Melbourne um, and uh, I, I learned about uh, active frontages, in other words, streets that actually have shops that face the front and, and people can connect and the whole human scale of it as opposed to perhaps what can happen certainly in places like uh you know Los Angeles where all the all the shop fronts face into the into the mall and outside are just are just um you know bare walls and um mm. and, and, and flax really so um so we went, we went out there and uh, it was just off to the local high school for uh, for 6 years I was I wasn't I was nothing flash you know I was an ordinary student I was an ordinary um, sports person, but what I did love to do was to to go hiking and uh, and uh, spend spent time often you know, going out with friends, uh, buying the gear and from the uh, well there were no there were no outdoor shops back then it was all um, it was the uh, army disposals as we yeah, had, yeah, had, yeah, had to yeah. get your gear yeah. so you probably dressed like a little army man. Um, you know, carrying heavy packs and heavy things made out of tin, you know. So, um, but that was great. And uh, so I had a, a pretty good, pretty good uh, upbringing, a very strong, close-knit family. Um, and then uh, then I had to decide what I wanted to be when I grew up, yeah. which I'm still thinking about and trying to decide. <laughs> um, but I had an excited, I've always been excited by lots of things. In fact, I get excited by too many things, hence you'll see in the CV with uh, the number of boards and committees and causes that I get involved in because I just I just get excited and I, I, I forget to say no yeah yeah um pa pa passionate you would say yeah but well, yeah, yeah. There, there's, there's certainly a passion um and I and I you know I I, I finished and I just thought what I want to go to, you know, go to university I was the first in my extended family uh, to go to university um and I wasn't sure you know I wasn't getting you know A's and B's I'm you know I've always a a believer that um, you know D's get degrees. Yeah. Um, so uh, I was always in the C's and the D's, yeah. um, but you know you get through. Yeah. And uh, but I was doing quite well at sport. I was playing a you know fairly high level of of football, and I was pretty fast as a runner, but I wasn't huge. And um, 
So I decided I would be, and again, the romance in my mind, the creativity in my mind is I'd like to be the primary school teacher in a small country town uh, where I'd also be the local footballer and I'd be on a couple of, you know, I'd, I'd be somebody in a small community. Yeah. Um, uh, so I started um, uh, I started that course because it was my second choice because I really want to get into social work, but there were not that many social work courses around. Um, the only one I could really get into was a postgraduate one and I was still an undergraduate. And yeah. Anyway, so I started uh, out of Burwood Teachers College, which is now Deakin University in Melbourne, uh, in primary teaching. And I, I, I guess I have to thank, and I was playing footy at a, at a, at a nice level, and uh, David Parkin, who was the uh, uh, a coach and a player of uh, one of the AFL teams, or VFL it was called back then, he was um, a teacher or a lecturer in the, in, in the phys ed degree. And he saw me and he said, what, why are you doing primary teaching? Why don't you come and do, uh, do secondary uh, phys ed, right? which was a four-year course rather than a three-year course? And you also had to choose a second uh, a second uh, topic. And I didn't want to be a maths teacher or a social yeah, studies yeah. teacher or a geography teacher. So I chose a new course called Outdoor Education, Outdoor Recreation. And it was seen as a bit of a slack course. And, you know, you did scuba diving and you had to learn um, uh, skiing and you had to do all the, and do do hikes. And um, and uh, it was fantastic. Uh, and at the end, I, I graduated. It took me six years to do a four-year course. I stopped a couple of times and went went away, um, still living at home. And then, um, and then I finished and... During one of the uh, placements, when others would go out on teaching rounds, I'd go out on outdoor re recreation rounds, which would be uh, camps. Yeah. And um, in those days, life been at camps, and were, it was all uh, all the go. And yeah. uh, it kind of got me into that. And I got a job at the Department of Youth Sport and Recreation as their um, as a recreation officer, looking after camps. Yeah. And at this point, the uh, it was where the Victorian government at the time would have surplus um, facilities, so the Kiwa Valley um, uh, huts and everything else that were built yeah, for the workers yeah. up there to build the Kiwa Valley Power um, Station and everything else uh, was finished. So they said, what do we do with this? We'll give this this to the Department of Sport and Rec and they can use it for a camp. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was an orphanage um, out in um, – out, uh, in another area, which was uh, near the Lions or Bullens um, Lion Park. I don't know if you're from Melbourne, but uh, no, we, used no, no. we used to have Lion Parks down here where you just got in your, your Falcon with the family yeah. Yeah. and you would drive um, uh, around the park and you just have lions roaming and jumping on your bonnets and oh, really? coming. It, it was, okay. when you think back at it, uh, out, in, out in the west. And next to that was uh, the Lady Northcote um, uh basically an orphanage or a children's home and when that closed I will sport and rec they can make that into a camp and my job was to run camps for and I yeah. ran family camps and and camps for for people with disabilities and and sports camps and all the rest of it and it was a fantastic job because I was back in my element yeah doing doing all of that work uh and from there very quickly uh I'm trying to trying to you know work out where no, I went no, no. Uh, is there anything um uh, and I don't. It's kind of interesting. Aside, how old are you then when you're um, when you're doing all this camp work? 
Well, I was about 22. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd stayed with the, with the scouting organi- uh, movement and I became a Queen Scout, which was the highest you could get uh, at the mm-hmm. time, um, which had me, again, in leadership roles and, um, uh, and responsibility. And when I'm running these camps, uh, again, you know, it was, uh, it was fantastic. So I kind of had a, na- a knack for, for being in a leadership role, um, certainly in, uh, in, in the outdoors or, you know. Uh, Quite a young age. Yeah. At quite a young age, yeah. Um, and then the and then and, and I was running ski camps, so I had 13 weeks of ski camps for up at, uh, at at Falls Creek, and you know we'd take up a hundred people, and my job was to organise the ski leaders and the ski instructors and the and the cooks and the people and all the rest of it, and the buses and the ski lessons and the ski hire. Um, and then at about the age of 23 or four, the government changed from from delivering um, programs to being more of an advocate um, uh, of, of you know, good good living. Yeah. And we had to give away all these programs. So the Bushwalking Mountain Leadership course w- was set up independently and the disabled camps went to a, a camps group and the ski camps went to the Victorian Ski Association yeah. and the surf camps went off to the you know, Australian surfing. And my job was to you know, move all those away. And it was during that time that the Victorian Ski Association, who were going to take over these 13 weeks of, um, you know, taking up 100 people a week, that's 1,300 people being introduced to uh, this sport, were looking for an executive director. And uh, so I um, I applied and I think I got the job because I, I was also the organiser of these camps and they were worrying about whether or not the camps would... Uh, uh, would run if I, if I wasn't running them. Yeah. Can I, I just? Really um, I, I'm like, I think it's quite amazing already. Like you're 24 and you're the the, the executive director of the Victorian Ski Association um, camps. Do you want to just take me back? Um, like you're a 22 year old young young adult um, in charge of all these different camps with disabilities and on what you just said, 100 people a week for a 13 week ski season. So, so you're really you're a logistic a logistical giant, really. When I think about all the things you're pull, pulling together in in my world in the in the police with you know major events and stuff like that, um, is there some story or something happened during that time where you um, where you maybe got it wrong or you or you learnt something for your future life um, or where you got it right. Is there any something significant in that time that really resonates with you? Yeah, again, just trying to think back. I mean, I did. Um, I mean, I got a lot wrong. Um, <laughs> we all do. Um, but I, I think, you know, I, I used to volunteer at um, at, a, at a place, a home. You know, back when uh, you know people with disabilities were institutionalised, and I used to volunteer as a kid there and, and go out with people. So I've always had a uh, not just a passion, but a compassion for people. Um, but it actually was on a ski program, so I'm um, this, I'm still working at Sport and Rec, and uh, uh, we did have police uh, who would you know, obviously police had lots of uh, holidays, mm. uh, so they'd come up and volunteer for the week um, as a as a ski leader or, or whatever it might be. And I, I do remember getting caught between um, two uh, police who were both going policemen who were both going for the same job back in in the in police world, uh, and. Um, uh, one accused the other of, you know, rifling through the uh, 
through the lost property uh, for this fantastic coat that, it, that that this person was was and he said no no I was, it wasn't a lost property but I'm, I'm pretty sure it was mine anyway on it went anyway I ended up with um, internal investigations and I oh, ended, up court, ended up in court and I know both of these people and um, and I, and I had a a letter from somebody who had lost a coat and they described it back in the office of the um, Victorian Ski Association and you know I'm I'm the executive director there, and uh, it ended up going to court about uh, a year later, and yeah, I'm, called, I'm called as a witness. And uh, I can't find this letter. I remember it, but I can't yeah. find it anywhere, okay? Uh, so uh, in the, it all ended up in tears for everybody. But um, I do remember the importance of being organised with him, a filing and and in, in things that were important, rather than just letting stuff go, which up until then I was a bit haphazard in terms of, because I was never a great academic at, uh, yeah, yeah, and those sorts of things. So, you know, on the fly, on the ground, I'm very organised and very logistical, and, and got it. And you know, you can see everything that needs to be done. But when it comes back to the paperwork, so I did learn from that to uh, to make sure that my paperwork was, it's was a good story, uh, was in order. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I think that's a very yeah. common common trait. We love the excitement. We hate the paperwork. So, yeah. um, so let's go. And I, I just didn't, I knew there'd have to be something in that. So, you, where I um, interrupted you, you're up to the Victorian Ski Association yeah. as the executive director. So, where, what what happens then? Well, it's interesting because I, I think back to say, why did I take the why did I take the job? Because I was quite young, and um, you know, it wasn't. You know, we used to run. Um, you know, obviously competitions and but what real what it really was at the end of the day is that I got to be on the radio and the TV doing ski <laughs> reports. Yeah. So it was ego more than anything yeah. else. Um, and uh, so you know, I'd be on you know Hot Hit Three X One. I'd be doing ski reports to four or five different stations, and then on Channel on well, it was called Channel Ten or Channel Channel O then now Channel Ten in Melbourne um, on a Thursday night doing a ski report and. Um, and I got a little bit recognised, and I like that. So yeah. you know, I do believe that um, if you are going to be a leader, you do have to have a, a little bit of ego, a little bit of you know self-belief. Yeah. Um, uh, you, you can't hide under a bushel and just be you know bashful and shy. And oh, it wasn't me. So, so I do remember you know having to to manage you know how much ego is good and how much is too much and all those yeah. sort of things. Yeah. So that self-reflective. You know, emotional uh, intelligence stuff was uh, was certainly around very early on. So, uh, so I did that at the ski association for a few years, and then I actually got a job as a as, as a, in in what was called the sports development unit uh, in in back in the government, and uh, and I had by then decided to do a masters uh, in in business, uh, and. So I, I became involved and uh, wrote a manual or a book or whatever it might, whatever it was, in um, in helping organise sporting organisations have actually have business plans. I mean, we're talking about the 70s here and or early 80s, and you know, in those days, if you're a good player or a good coach, that means you must be a good administrator or manager of yeah. the organisation. And uh, and it was the early days of sports management courses and all those sorts of things. So I, I'd lecture at them and talk at them and 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 all the rest of it. So I mean, I love my time there. 
And then uh, I finished the master's degree um, and uh, a friend of mine um, was it was in local government. And I'm trying to think, where am I going to go next? I was um, uh, newly newly married, um, no kids. So I was on committees then. I was on the Australian Sports uh, Administrators uh, Association and I was you know, still doing stuff with the local scouts and I'm still kicking the footy on whenever I could get to it when I'm not away on yeah. On, uh, on outdoor outdoor things, uh, and I got the job as the manager of community services uh, out at um at uh, an out of an out of city council, and uh, that gave me things like you know home help and um, um you know uh, those sorts of things. And when I thought think back on on interestingly my career, you know my first instinct was to go into social work, but I didn't get into it, so I went into yeah. into phys ed teaching. Um, the reason it took me six years to uh, to finish a four year course is because I left and did a youth work degree in the middle of it. Wow! Um, yeah. And and now here I am looking at you know it's community services. So there's been along with the outdoors and the adventure side, there's been this theme of of people and community. Uh, and I don't know whether that's you know I might have to lie down on a couch for you to work this bit out, but whether whether it was a need to be a part of a community or need to have a best friend or need to but I'm sure there's something in all of that. Yeah, yeah. And and so I keep coming back to this you know community um side of things um as I go through uh, through my career. It's just especially when I reflect on it. Yeah. Um you know I, I have a fundamental belief that um most people uh want to and will do the right thing. So I do give the benefit of the doubt to people, um, and until I'm proven wrong, I'll always believe that they are doing the best they can with the tools and the equipment and schooling and background and experiences that, that, that they bring to a particular task. And that's held me in pretty good stead over the years. It's um, so refreshing, uh, Scott. Um... One of my last guests was Andrew Colvin, the former AFP commissioner, yeah, yep. and and he you you and him just firstly said the same sentence, um, and it's a, it's a really inspiring thing to hear leaders at your level say that because it's not I don't, it's not all that common. <laughs> yeah, well, well, it, 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 at times you do get burnt, and at times, um, uh, you know, you, you, I, I do run with my instinct on on a person rather than anything else. I know, you know, I've hired a lot of people over the years, thousands, I suppose. Um, and uh, now you've got their, you've got their, their skill set and experience. You've got their qualifications, and then you've got their, their attitude. And um, I'll always hire on attitude um, because you can teach the other. You can, you can give people experience. You can get them qualified. But if the attitude's not right and the behaviours that follow those attitudes are not right, it's very hard. And I've been you know, burnt at times by having people come in with highly skilled, highly experienced, but just not not the right fit. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and I do say to my managers when they're hiring, I say, okay, don't get the best, get the best fit, and you know what your um, your management and your and your staff team are like, and who's going to fit fit in that best because you might you might miss a bit on the skills and experience, which you can always uh, buy from outside. But yeah. if it doesn't fit well, then you're going to spend all your time managing the the conflicts amongst the people. Mm. Good advice. Yeah. All right. Yep. So anyway, so after the, after that, I'm I'm back in at uh, so I'm now at the at the city of uh, city of Ringwood, looking after community services, and here I am going out to uh, 
to people who are I had you know, homeless. I had youth work involved in, in that. Um, I had uh, uh, home help, which was uh, uh, people going in to, to help um, people who were struggling, you know, mainly elderly, elderly people. Mm -hmm. These are all government, you know, sort of local government programs. I had family daycare and childcare centres and and all the rest of it. And I actually loved that um, and uh, and did that for about nine years. Okay, um, wow. Um, uh, and I guess, you know, having worked at all levels of government, I've worked at federal government um, uh, and local and state, I guess local government to me is the most immediate um, because you're, you're closest to the people. Uh, you have a council meeting uh, once a month, you put up your report and you get a yes or a no uh, at, at that point, rather than perhaps taking two or three years to get some change or some decision through uh, through the other levels of government. Yeah. So I enjoyed that um, that time. Uh, and then I, then I had a career crisis myself. Okay. I was, uh, I was on, I'd, I'd won a couple of scholarships. I'd gone overseas to do um, study tours um, through the local government professional groups. I was, I was doing consulting back to sport uh, because I had this, you know, I knew, I knew how sport worked and I also had the management side. And in, in those early days, not many people had management and leadership skills along with that. Yeah. So, um, so I was doing, you know, I guess they call it the hustle, side hustle now. Yeah. Back then it was called moonlighting or second, <laughs> yeah. second job you didn't tell your boss about. Yeah. And that was to help, you know, pay for the house and yeah. you know, young kids and all the rest of it. Um, and uh, I was I was actually sp I was speaking at a, at a at a conference in Canberra, a local government conference, and uh, a person came up to me and said, uh, oh, "I wouldn't mind talking to you about having a meeting with you." And I thought oh, that'd be great. Gave him a card, and uh, about six weeks later, I got a phone call from this person from the ANZ Bank, and uh, I banked with the ANZ Bank at the time. I thought, "Oh, what have I done? I'm overdrawn or whatever it is." And he actually wanted to offer me a job. In, in change management, um, which is what I did my master's um, thesis in, which was around man you know, managers in transition and change management. Yeah. So the ego got in the way again. I'm thinking, well, it's not often you get asked into a, you know, one of the top 40 businesses in the country and uh, at a senior level. And uh, I'd spent all my life in um, in government or not for you know, or you know, not for profits in sport. So, uh, so I took the job, and that was the worst ten months of my year, my life. Um, okay. Because three days after I got there, uh, the ANZ Bank changed their CEO, uh, and the new CEO had come in because the bank was in crisis, and I my job was to sack four thousand people oh. across across forty countries. Um, and it was all about putting things out into out to tender, and and you know. I'd been through this at the uh, at the city of, of Melbourne because the state government at this time, and this is about 1994, took what was around about um, uh, you know, three or 250 councils and amalgamated them into yeah. only 70, 74. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd been through amalgamations and had to let people go and um, and fight for a job yourself. As you know, there's six. Six executives or general managers or directors trying to get three jobs only in the new entity, and I was fortunate enough to get one. So that was the same thing uh, at this place, and I, I just—that's when the hair went. Um, that's when uh, I was up at night because it wasn't me, you know. Yeah. Um, you know these people who had spent—I um, don't know—30 
30 years in the bank, done exactly what the bank had asked, and because of poor management or leadership decisions, we're, we're now, you know, going to lose their jobs. So my job was just, I became known as T1, Tobin Brother 1, um, and I had a team of about 20 people, T2, T3, and yeah. you know, you'd go into various parts of the uh, of the organisation and you'd have to uh, basically say that, um, you know, the bank will, will give you, you know, options of other redeployment knowing full well there were no other options. Uh, people worried about their jobs, and I'm trying to say, well, the new contractor who's going to come in, you know, they haven't got a whole staff sitting in the cupboard waiting to jump out and take your job. So, so you know, so it was very, it was very hard for for these yeah. people, and I found it very yeah. hard. So I was a bit soft in how I did it, but again, another truism for me is that organisations are just made up of people. Yes, yeah. you've got systems and methodologies and and hardware and and, and you know, your purpose and your strategy, but at the end of the day, it just comes down to a group of people who have come together under the under an organisational name, uh, trying to do the right thing by each other and for the company. So if you always focus on the people, then um, then that was it. Anyway, I did that for ten months, and then I was talking to uh, to somebody who said, "Oh, we're looking for a general manager or whatever what it was going anyway, the boss of uh, of a new development uh, in Melbourne, which was the South Bank development." Oh yeah, yeah. So here can I am I, going. Can, can I just can I just take you back? Because yeah, because uh, yeah. you're quite, it's an incredible career, but you're you're honest enough and uh, giving enough to share that experience with us. Um, where you're at the ANZ and you're you're you have to sack four thousand people across forty countries um, through no fault of their own, and you said it. Um, that's where you lost your hair and you had sleepless nights. What did it do to you? Like um, like. Who, who well, could you go to for help then during that time? Well, I guess there was lots of talk at home, um, but most of it I just bottled up. And, you know, I was, I remember I was 40 years old and I'm thinking, you know, I've got my eye on the long term thinking I can't leave a job within six months because that won't look good on the CV and I'll have to explain. Yeah. I've got to stick this out for a year or two years at least. Um, now I'd, I'd be sweating. Um, I'd be worried. Um, I don't carry stress well. I don't. I, I internalize it. I don't. You know. I don't spread it. I tend to absorb it, which is what I think leaders, you know, need to do in the right places. Um, but in the end, I was just. I was just. It was just. It was just eating away at me as a my confidence and, and everything else. And uh, uh, and in the end, it was because I was offered another job. Um, uh, that I was able to to leave, um, and um, and I just remember the culture was wrong for me. Um, I'm not about um, uh, you know shareholder value. You know, the others are, and that's you know, good for them. But you know, I just found it very hard to uh, to be just trying to make as much money as I can for the bank by by people you know exiting uh, mm. and not uh, and not looking after people, which has had been my whole DNA up until up until yeah. mode of operating up until then. Okay. No, thank yeah. you. I, I mean, I uh, there's a there is a story about it, but let's let's keep moving. But I I think it's um it's interesting. People such as yourself know when it doesn't fit, and and yeah. and then it has and it has an impact on your on your own well being when it doesn't fit. Uh, it was, and you know, I'm in the city, and I'm 
I'm just sitting in a in a back alley eating my sandwiches I've taken in by myself and and um, you know and it was a hard time you know, for the bank. Um, shareholders were calling out for you know anyway on it goes. So I just found myself in the wrong place, but it was my own choice and it was my own ego, I guess, to think, well, here I am. I've done all these other sectors. You know, I haven't done the private sector, yeah. and uh, and in I went. Um, it was interesting. I also was fortunate enough to do a leadership course, um, which was the Williamson Leadership Course, or now called Leadership Victoria. And um, it still runs, and they take 20 people uh, over a, a 12-month period, and you meet, uh, you know, once a week, uh, and it's all Chatham House rules, and you're exposed to, to, uh, to the inside discussions of, of, of leaders in, in your own community. So, you know, you'll have a lunch with the CEO of the, um, with the AFL, and, and, and they'll talk about sports leadership and sports management and some of their challenges. Then we'll be down at a, um, at a, um, at a, at a sewerage, you know, Werribee sewerage farm, which takes, you know, all the sewerage from the west of Melbourne through and, yeah. and what they're doing. And then, and on it went. And I remember um, I'd always had a bit of a, uh, I'd always thought that the private sector was better than the public sector. Because again, when I was, you know, I'm 65 now, so um, in my day, if you couldn't get a job, a real job, you went and worked for the public service, right? Where it yeah. was, you know, at that stage, a job for life and no accountability. Yeah. Um, and it was the uh, it was the head of the of the public um, the, the public transport, and we obviously had him as a speaker. And he said, uh, "This is before I went to the ANZ Bank, um, no, or after, I can't remember. Anyway." Uh, he said, look, I would back a good, the emphasis was on good, mm. pub, a manager in the public service against a good manager in the private sector any day. And I, for the first time, I remember kind of sitting up in my seats thinking, oh, I've never heard this before. Yeah, I've always yeah. been. Because you, you looked at the leadership group that we, there was 20 of us and 18 were from the private sector and two of us from the public sector. Yeah. Um, and uh, and he said the reason is is that in the in the and this is simplifying things but um, he said in the private sector basically you've got your boss you've got your staff um, uh, and uh, and that's that's and your and your customer they're the three you know people you you, you have to manage yeah but in the public sector you've got your boss and you've got your staff you've got your customer you've got the media you've got the government you've got um, uh, uh, the, you know the, the general public you know, yeah. to, you know and to to deliver well in that uh, environment is much more complex and difficult and perhaps in a in a much more simpler uh, environment and and I remember that till to this day and, and it gave me I guess faith and confidence that that maybe if you're working in if you're not in the private sector but you're working in a charitable or a not-for-profit or a government sector, which is often seen as a soft side of hard business, mm. um, that uh, that you weren't really a second-class citizen, uh, and that and that that stayed with me. It, it doesn't decry one over the other, but it just gave me the confidence to say, well, I, I am worthwhile, and the work that we do is worthwhile. Totally, totally. And and it's in a very hard and complex environment, and we That's see that very- play out these days. <laughs> we do, don't we? And we see. Um- I mean, that's another whole topic, but the context of what that uh, gentleman said to you uh, from the head of the public transport, um, 
around like a public sector person that has all these considerations in a de decision, whereas on his account, a private sector doesn't take into all of some of those media, government, general public considerations, and you can see that all go wrong um, yeah, in, 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 in current news cycles. <laughs> so. yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> anyway, so I'm now down at South Bank, which is Melbourne's newest um, um, destination. Before that, it was Ligon Street. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, well, before Ligon Street, it was the city centre. Now we've got this, you know, this place which is down there and, now I'm in property management, um, uh, and uh, it was. Uh, but I've been, and then I joined the local um, traders group and um, became. Uh, I don't know how, but I always end up as the chair of. of I've seen that. I, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how. I don't ask for it. I don't push for it. But it, you just end up there, and um, maybe it's just a sensible head, or I don't know what it is. I think uh, um, I can see just uh, you, you've led with it in the first five minutes. You love to connect with people. I think that's it, and, and yeah, I've got yeah. I put aside time for people. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so uh, so here I am at um um as the general manager. I'm working for Paladin Commercial Trust, who own the property, and uh, and I'm, I'm I'm there for about two or three years. Um. But again, you know, I've somehow strayed back into, um, you know, the, or I am in the, in the private sector. Uh, they were good to work for. Um, I was able to, you know, I, I didn't know how, but um, you know, there were 60 shops um, or tenants. Um, there were, you know, two big towers um, of, of offices. There was a car park, um, and uh, and it was, and all the people of of Melbourne would come to this because it was on the the south side of the Yarra River, which means we all we faced north, so we yeah. had sun all day. Yeah, and, uh, and the idea was to program it um, with you know outdoor chess games and and roasted nut sellers and dances and all the rest of it, um, fireworks at, fly, at New Year's Eve, as well as keep all these uh, these people happy. Um, and uh, I, I it was good. I enjoyed my time, but it just didn't feel big enough for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I ended up being uh, asked to. Uh, a lunch run by the Melbourne City Council. It was an AFL grand final lunch, and I turned up. I uh, didn't really know anyone, and uh, my name was on the top table. You know, so I went and asked the the, the person, you know, "Are you sure my name says should not be on the back table?" <laughs> and it was, "Well, you're the, you're the biggest rate payer in Melbourne." And at that time, it was the property that was paying the most rates. Okay, uh, because Crown Casino uh, was exempt at the time. Mm. Um, so I thought, oh, maybe I should be on this table. So here I am yeah. with the CEO of the, and the, the Lord Mayor and uh, and uh, a couple of AFL people and the, the entertainer who was the guy who sings up there, Kazali, Mike, can't think of his last name. Mm. And um, and uh, and at that meeting, they were looking for a director of marketing and communications and major events and retail attraction and all the rest of it. So I didn't apply, um, but um, somehow they found my name and I was asked to come to an interview. And I remember having the interview and I'm saying, look, I've done local government. I'm not going to do local government again. Uh, but in the end, I figured, well, I'll, it, it seems bigger than what the, the local you know, yeah. council was. It's bigger than that. It's broader. There's more scope. And, um, and capital city government is much different from yeah, yeah. suburban government. So I was there for 10 years um, um, looking after things like the Commonwealth, all the major events, Commonwealth Games, 
bidding for events, going overseas, picking up, um, you know, trying to, you know, get Jersey boys to open here and not in Sydney and, yeah. and um, you know, all those sort of things. So it was really about activating the city. And it was a, at a great time because at that time we were just, um, you know, this, the, the council was quite progressive although it did get sacked by the state government for the third time in 20 years for dysfunction. <laughs> um, but um, so we uh, so we were gentrifying the city in terms of bringing in what were called um, uh, New York-style apartments, come and live in a city. You know, what, what do you mean live in a city? Up until then it was just, you know, you drove into the city for 9 o'clock and you left at 5 and, and you know, you might go in on the weekends if you're going to go shopping or to a show, but that was yeah. it. You know, everyone lived yeah. in the suburbs. What in, so it was about how do we how do we live in the city? So we had you know one director whose job it was to look at the the, the design and everything else. We had you know the person the director who was in charge of all the bylaws and everything else, uh, looking at you know, how do we get licensing for for more um, you know uh, drinking and eating um, you know in, on the streets. Um, uh, another director was looking at you know how do we actually bring in facilities like chemists and news agents and supermarkets and all the things that are certainly out there in the suburbs but were not in the city at the time. Yeah. And my job was to actually you know, activate and make it an attractive place to live and to be and to visit. Yeah. And that went on for, for 10 years or four Lord Mayors. Um, and uh, and then uh, after two five-year contracts, um, my contract wasn't renewed. So in effect, okay. I was sacked. Yeah. Really? Okay. So in, in effect, I was sacked. And, uh, and I never... But they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't tell me why. I was obviously doing well. Uh, I did hear later that there might have been some jealousy between a new CEO coming in, and I happen to have all the contacts, all the invitations. Yeah. <laughs> but who knows? Who knows what it was? Um, that was fine. I'd done four Lord Mayors. I was kind of, perhaps I was a bit tired and over it and jaded and yeah. politically scarred through lots of things that didn't didn't yeah. work. Yeah. And, yeah. But. Um, do you want to, um, as your the, what you're in is like my my last 15 years as a cop was a lot of it was around major events in Sydney. So um, you're kind of talking. I, I understand where, where, what world you're in. Do you want to talk about two things there, maybe? Um, and and we're not even up to your current current job yet. But um, look, what it may in in the major events world. What was something that you were really proud of, and what was something that um, was a mess, and you and you had to fix it? Um, well, in, in in my city of city of Melbourne world, I guess, and again, it goes back to community. But I um I was acting CEO um, at the time of uh, of when the tsunami hit in two thousand and four, and um, you know, obviously, I, my other hat was organising the the city festivities and the New Year's Eve fireworks and all the rest of it. And um, the tsunami, if you remember, hit uh, on Boxing Day, the day after Christmas. Yeah. Uh, so we still had a major event coming up, which was New Year's Eve. And New Year's Eve is not really, well, it's a celebration, but it's really a containment event for the city and for the police. Because if you don't organise something, then you've got chaos across, across the city. You've got hordes coming in and you've got petty crime going left, right and centre. But if you organise it and contain it and put on entertainment and all the rest of it, then then you've got a, a much uh, homog more homogenous and, and safer environment. 
and the local radio show, radio programs, oh, we can't go, we can't have a celebration at this time of world disaster. We're going to have to cancel it. And, I, and the, the Lord Mayor at the time went on um, uh, and was asked, well, if you're going to go ahead with it, you, know, you couldn't cancel it. You already had all the shops had sold their $500 seats, you know, with window uh, window seats to watch the fireworks, and you you already paid for it all anyway. And and um, but he was asked whether he would help uh, the Shane Warne Foundation to rebuild the Gaul Cricket Ground in Sri Lanka. Uh, and of course, he said yes. And I'm sitting there going, No, we're not spending ratepayers. So, uh, so contacted some of the people that uh, I knew because, you know, through all the major events and we put on a, um, a free concert, well, a concert at the Maya Music Bowl, which was uh, the artists, you know, went on for free and we raised about $500,000. And um, and I was fortunate enough to then be, because I looked after all the overseas sister cities and all the rest of it, to be sent over to Sri Lanka Um five weeks after the tsunami hit, mm. um, basically with $500,000 in my back pocket to find some projects that would um, benefit, obviously, the community and that you know, Melbourne as a city could hang its hat on. Um, and I remember walking, you know, travelling with uh, two other people um, who I'd never met before. One was um, a Sri Lankan from Sydney who uh, uh, was a part of a, a group called uh, Architects Without Borders and he was volunteering. And we went and met with lots of people. And the reason we didn't send the money straight over because uh, governments over there can't perhaps be trusted with uh, yeah. cash coming in and getting to the right places. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember you know, the wharves were, were filling up with um, uh, containers from all over the world. And um, you know, unless you were able to provide some kind of consideration to the people oh, in yeah. the wharf, you know, it wouldn't yeah. be unloaded. So you know, there was that, that that you know, developing country um, mm. survival mentality because there's no systems, yeah. um, uh, and uh, so we didn't actually give the money to the government. I eventually, came across a school in Dick Weller. Uh, the school had a thousand kids going to it because seven other schools in the area had been destroyed. This school was one kilometre inland, and the uh, the water didn't reach there. And it was a school that that had um, only um, one set of toilets, and so that was for the females. The boys had to go behind trees. Uh, the classrooms were, were um, you know, hewn um, logs with um, corrugated iron and rocks on top of the corrugated iron so it wouldn't blow off, um, and it was run by a, a monk. Um, anyway, worked with that person, and uh, we built a school, um, yeah. And I've been back to Sri Lanka probably four times. I'm going again in August, um, uh, and uh, for for that cause as well. But just meeting the kids and and you know we went back eventually, and you know, the deputy Lord Mayor came back two years later, and we built this you know fantastic school. We provided computers and library books and wow. gardening um materials and 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 became the center and and one thing that is interesting over there is and you i'm sure you've traveled but when you go into some of the developing countries and uh you know they are you know they're very poor and really struggling but the one thing that you notice is that the kids going to school are in absolute you know really white shirts and clean shorts and shiny shoes because education is the way you know out of that you know, out of out of the situation they're in, and they highly value it. 
So one time we went back, and uh, this school has won the uh, the Sri Lankan dance um, championships. Uh, so they put the dance on for us, and you're meeting the kids again, and the families, and all the rest of it. So that was a that was a nothing to do with the city of Melbourne in terms of major events here, but uh, again takes me back to that community, social work, youth work kind of um, you know, part of part of me that uh, that is, was really rewarding. And at the same time, it is what coming. You, you, you're so modest, Scott. Um, like you've got this, you've got this can-do attitude. How can we? Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. You know, and I say to my managers, don't don't tell me why we can't. Tell me, uh, tell me how we can. Yeah, uh, that's a that's a huge um, that's yeah. a huge thread out of that little yarn there. So, um, and hats off to you that you um you made that work. That's just a that's a wonderful story. Um. Where to next? Like we're we're we you've you've lost your contract. Uh, yeah, well, I'm only, so, so I'm unemployed at the age of fifty. Um, I'm thinking, you know, because I'm a pretty conservative sort of person. I like to know what's next before I let go of what is. Um, uh, a, a friend throws me a lifeline, and I do a bit of consulting uh, work there. Uh, I'm looking for a, a job. I'm fifty. Actually, I was fifty-two. And I'm thinking, well, I can get my super in three years' time, so I just have to get through for three years. And uh, meanwhile, I'm, you know, I'm on boards, I'm on committees, I'm very well connected. I know most of the people in Melbourne because of the profile of the uh, the roles I've been in. And um, and the Royal Flying Doctor Service in Victoria, and I didn't even know there was one in Victoria, mm. was looking for a, I think they called an executive director of fundraising or something. And it was only that I was—I knew the chairman, uh, and I was talking to him about, you know, my career and what's next and how to get a job. And he said, "Well, we've got this—that um, I'm, you know, and we're looking for someone." And so I said, "Well, I don't know anything about fundraising, but I know about management. I know about people." Um, and uh, so I, I got the job, um, and I came to the first day of work, um, and I—and um, there were five part-time ladies only. And Victoria, interestingly, um, so the, fed, the flying doctors are a federated model. Every state has a flying doctor service. In a way, we're six companies sharing one brand. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we're most of the you know people believe we're just one organisation. But that's the same for St John's and Salvation Army and all. There's a lot of federated models, and part of it is because state governments like to fund state organisations. Um, yeah. And if you're a national organisation, it's very hard to get money out of the state. That's changing a little bit with contracts and everything else, but largely that's that's part of the, the reason that we grew up as a federated model. Um, and I'm thinking, what have I done here? Oh, can I last three years? Three years. Um, we were delivering no services and we had never delivered a service in Victoria, yet Victoria was the very first of the flying doctor states to get going because all the people were from the, you know, um, John Flynn was born in Maligal, just outside of Bendigo. Um, H.V. Mackay, the first donor who started up the Sunshine Harvester, he was out in what is now known as Sunshine Suburb. Um, the person who invented the, the pedal radio was from uh, West Victoria. The first doctor was um, uh, Dr. Simpson, who was here in Hawthorne. Uh, the, 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 the fellow who um, who was reading about, you know, this guy John Flynn trying to do things in the outback and get health services out there uh, was from um, country Victoria he was a, a pilot um, uh, he was 22 and he's on his way to on his way to war World War one 
yeah. in, in 19, uh, 1917, and he, he'd read it in the Argus that, and he, and he had this idea about these newfangled things called aeroplanes. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so he wrote a, an extensive letter to uh, to John Flynn, um, who then got the idea of aeroplanes, and and wasn't just here. Here's a good idea. It was here's where the strips are. This is how much it's going to cost to fly. This is what you're going to need. This is and all that sort of stuff. And he he was shot down five weeks later um, in France, and never knew the contribution his suggestion wow. made. What is an Australian institution. Wow. So Victoria, the first flight was up in, in Queensland when um, when John Flynn got some money from H.V. Mackay and uh, hired an aeroplane off of, a, off of a, a Hudson Fish who had just started a new company called Qantas, yep. Queensland and Northern Territory Aerial Service. Um, so the first flights were there, but then eventually the first state to get up and going was Victoria. So the meeting was in the Melbourne Town Hall, yeah. And we formed what was called the Australian Inland Aerial Service, and we opened the very first base, not in Victoria, but in in uh, in uh, in northern uh, Western Australia. And yeah. we ran that for seventy years from Victoria right up to the year two thousand and ten. Yeah. Um, uh, and then all the other states got going after that. Uh, and in two thousand and ten, Western Australian Flying Doctors. Um, they were a bit younger than us, were big enough to look after their whole state. We gave them all of our equipment and staff and aeroplanes and everything else up there in um, in Derby. And uh, and we came back to Victoria and we just became a fundraiser for 10 years. So these five um, five uh, women who were working here were basically fundraising, like an auxiliary in the corner of the country. Yeah. Raising about a million or two million a year from very generous donors and then just sending it straight over to Western Australia because of that you know, historical umbilical connection that we had with them. Yeah. Uh, so I got here and I thought, well, crikey's, flying doctors, I'll do three years, I can get my super. Um, but I, in reflection, I, if I think back, there were three things that we had. There was a bit of money in the bank. We were able to raise one or two million a year, so that was okay. Uh, had a greenfield site in Victoria, had never delivered a service here and had a brand to kill for. Um, yeah. you know, everyone, it just opens doors left, right and centre. And from that, now after 14 years, and uh, this is my last year, um, uh, we have just on 700 staff. We're the biggest of the flying doctor services in terms of staff numbers. We only have one aeroplane um, and we don't do the emergency retrieval stuff. That's done by the state government, Ambulance Victoria. But we have dentists and mental health workers and endocrinologists and and, uh, speech therapists and GPs and patient transport officers and all, all that sort of stuff. So we basically are providing services where there are no services. Because one thing I have learned in this job is that you get about uh, 50 kilometres out of a capital city and the health services just fall off a cliff dramatically in terms of uh, of access. So that's where I am. And um, I did two more five-year contracts and now I've, you know, with the board, uh, decided that at 65, I'll be 66 in 12 months' time, and I've got 12 months to go, that uh, that'll do um, because I'm still doing the adventures that I love to do. I've just ridden a motorbike across Australia, the 1942 um, uh, Harley-Davidson with a group of other people to raise money for the flying doctors and for very uh-huh. special. Um, I went to the, the uh, Arctic um, and towards the North Pole in the minus 35, sleeping in tents and pulling a pulp behind me. Just got back from Patagonia, uh, ice fields down there on a uh, expedition, 
So I still love that sort of stuff. Um, and the kids have got that in their in their bones. My daughter at the moment's riding a push bike the length of uh, South South uh, South America with her partner. And uh, one son's joined the army. He thinks it's big scouts, but uh, yeah. he's now a cap- he's now a captain there. And the other one works um, as a senior fisheries officer. So he's out on the uh, out on the boats uh, in Port Phillip Bay, you know, looking after fishery um, issues. So wow. outdoors has permeated um, uh, across the whole family. Let's um, you've. I mean, it's very. Uh, it's quite common with people such as yourself, like uh, to to gloss over probably maybe your, one of your biggest achievements. Really, you spent your last fourteen years in the Royal Flying Doctor Service in Victoria that started off with five part-time women just doing volunteers with no, nothing. Um, and then you've turned that into a 700-strong uh, staff organisation with one airplane that that goes to places where where there are no services essentially. So well, that's right. Yeah, but so we, I've also got I've also got 120 ambulances and 40. You know, so we do a lot more by by car. We, you know, we'll, rather than flying, we'll drive in, and a lot more. You know, telehealth is becoming very big as well at the moment. Okay. So um, yeah. So how did you um? Let's just say three, because we have got a little bit of time. So what two main milestones that you did in that 14 years that came about just by thinking differently and taking it out of something that it had never been before? Like, say, two main achievements in the Royal yep. Flying Doctor Service in Victoria in the 14 years. Well, it has been 14 years of thinking differently from the traditional services of the flying doctors and what people think we are. So the hero brand is, you know, Outback Rescue. When you add up all the all the states together in what we do, and we're about a we're about a 460 million dollar service across the country. We're about 65 million here in in Victoria. Um, less than 12 percent of what we do is the is that hero uh, retrieval work. And there's there's 30, 38 other uh, aero aeromedical retrieval companies uh, out there. There's Angel Flight, Life Flight, Care Flight, Little Wing, Westpac Helicopter. You know, on it goes. Um, there, there's lots of others who are out there vying for government contracts. So I thought that well, in Victoria, I don't really need an aeroplane to fly because mm. we we don't have the distances. By the time we you know, back it out, warm it up, and take off. We could be there by by car. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's an exaggeration, but I think you know what we mean. Yeah, no, totally. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm thinking, well, if we're doing a lot of work in the sky, in other in the big desert states, could we do that same work on the ground in our small state? And with that end, um, we're you know we're the largest uh, contractor to the ambulance service in providing non-emergency patient transport or you know, into hospital transports, which is what a lot of what we do in the air as well, just moving people from one place to another. It's not necessarily a, a um, an emergency retrieval. Um, and the other was that uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, the thing about working in, in, in a, an organisation that's about you know, emergencies is that basically you're at the bottom of the cliff with your ambulance or your aeroplane waiting for someone to fall off the cliff. Think, well, what if we're at the top of the cliff stopping them falling off to begin with? So that's about preventative and primary health and 
And the flying doctors had always defined there's these barriers to, to accessing good health outcomes. And we always define the barrier as distance. So our job was to overcome distance. But there's other barriers that uh, that I've learned of from a reading and going to some seminars. And the, you know, there's the barrier of cost, those who can't afford health services. There's the barrier, there's cultural barriers. There's just knowledge, just knowing what you can actually get. And then there's distance. So I I learned about a thing called the determinants of health. You know, what determine what determines a healthy person as opposed to a not healthy person? And you look at the determinants and uh, if you've got a job, you tend to be healthier than someone who doesn't have a job because obviously you've got income and means of of, uh, of accessing health. Levels of education, higher educated people tend to enjoy higher levels of health than perhaps those who haven't been as fortunate. Um, uh, the amenity, you know, if you've got access to good water and good food, um, uh, as opposed to those who don't have access to good water and good food. Uh, and on it goes, you know, there, there's there's lots of uh, determinants of health. Um, if you live in the city, you, you'll you live longer than if you live in the country. If you're uh, Anglo-Saxon, you'll live longer than if you're Indigenous. Right? So you start to look at, well, these are all the determinants. So how do we look at those who are more vulnerable and provide service to them? Um, so that was a way of thinking differently. And the Flying Doctors now really works in and some of this has been leadership from Victoria to say, well, let's challenge the status quo. So when I when I first started getting uh, uh, contracts for um, for doing uh, road transports, the pushback around the country, but we're the flying doctors. We're not the driving doctors. Yeah, yeah. I just went back and said, and before you, and before you were flying doctors, you were camel doctors. So let's <laughs> get over it. The aeroplane is just a means, as is a car, a telephone, a Zoom meeting. Uh, or a camel, mm. right? So there, there, there is a bit of the, you know, the, you know, the cohorts of, of pilots and doctors and being heroes and all the rest of it that we had to try and break down and say that, uh, uh, look, we're all in this together. We're all here to help each other. Um, uh, and interestingly, a number of them have now gotten into the road and and and, and enjoying it. Yeah. So there has been. What what started off as you know when I first went to the very first meeting of all the CEOs, um, I was called a non-operating uh, state or section, and I wasn't allowed to uh, join the CEOs because they were the wow. big, yeah. You know. Um, but after a while, and I just sat sat there and thought, you know, this is all a little bit wanky. Yeah. Um, and you know, it was it, it was a lot of you know hero, you know, I'm, I'm a flying doctor type stuff. Interestingly, um, Royal Flying Doctor Service, in, in, and I keep an eye to the future and saying, well, will we will we retain the title of royal or not? Given yeah. Yeah. In, you know, yeah. all of that. Um, flying doctors. Well, in Victoria, we don't actually fly doctors. Um, so really, we're just a service. And yeah. that's what we should be concentrating on is what, how do we use the brand um, for good um, and I and I see RFDS or Royal Flying Doctor Service not as a, a dictum that you will only fly doctors royally to save people. I see it as a brand that has certain brand elements, which is trust and reliability and quality. How do we take those three um, brands or brand elements and apply them to what is actually needed in in country areas? Wow. And the other the other big challenge that I did make, and I'll, I'll leave it here, is that um, 
it was all about remote. You know, we 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 look after the remote, and I'm saying, well, what define remote? I mean, you could be, and if you think of it, you could be in in a city in an aged care centre, yes. and you need to see your doctor, and you can't get to your doctor, and the doctor's not going to make a house call to the aged care centre. You might as well be in the middle of Australia. Right? So let's get rid of this, you know, this remote notion and talk about rural, regional and remote. So that was about bringing it closer in. Because yeah. John Flynn said, we need a mantle of safety across this whole country. I'm pretty sure he didn't mean, well, except there and there and there. He meant the whole country. So so let's legitimise ourselves as much as being a metropolitan service as we are a, a remote service. You are so much like so many other guests I've had on the show. Um, at your like your core value all the way through has been um, at a social level, um, how you can give back to community, and then and as you've gone into this part, um, you kind of summarise the determinants of health are who are the most vulnerable that need help. Uh, it's a pretty pretty good story, um, and some of the way you you like so many other leaders, um, it's so easy for you to. Like you went, you rattled it off. Trust, reliability, and quality. Um, you, you would you would be inspirational to work for because it's just you you nominate what the purpose was was pretty quickly. I'd imagine <laughs> for for whatever whatever task you're doing. I, I do like to talk to most staff when they get in here, if I can, uh, not to give them instruction, but to give them the flavour of the culture of what we're about. I mean, I'm as I'm as proud of the fact that we created 500 jobs in regional and rural Victoria as I am of the services that we provide, because that's another, you know, those people have a job, they have an income, that means their whole families. So, and there's, there's responsibility with all of that. So that's, again, focusing on, on your own people in this case, as well as the people that you're providing a service to. Beautiful. I think that's a really good wrap-up. How I normally end these interviews is, um, like, these interviews, I can't believe that they're all over the world, America, Scandinavia, <laughs> Ireland, but predominantly Australia and New Zealand. Um, so anyone listening in could be a brand new leader or maybe a leader with an, well, like yourself with another 12 months left on their contract. Um, what's your, what would be your three gems of advice that you think uh, would work? Okay. So I, I guess, if again, off the top of my head, um, I just think that it's about building strong relationships and the strength of the relationship determines the depth in which you can have a, a, a I won't call it a difficult discussion, but I'll call it a genuine discussion. And a genuine discussion where you have to face up to some of the hard things is uh, basically when you are having a genuine conversation with uh, with someone, it's not about who's going to win and who's going to lose and, and all the rest of it. Because uh, a genuine conversation, I think, has two elements. One is that um, that your intention is pure um, and that you believe it to be true at the time. Now, it may not be true later on, but at the time you believed it to be true. And to be able to have that strong relationship with uh, with those people who you know, you're fortunate enough to be leading or guiding is one thing. The other is that and I, I do a lot of talking in the difference between management and leadership, and I know there's a lot of semantics around it. But a manager manages, and they put, they usually manage the known. Right? So we've got the rules, we've got the policies, we've got um, you know the guidelines, and I, I make sure that we apply those. But a leader, so it's pretty black and white. But I just think a leader is someone who needs to be comfortable in the grey. Um, 
So you've got a lot of balls in the air. Um, you may not have a, a, an answer straight away, and it might take a while to get there. But you, you know, the manager wants to close things out and hammer, you know, get a hammer and make sure all the nails are in. Where a leader's probably got the hammer and they're just lifting the corner up to see if there's another way of doing it. So being able to live in the live in the grey, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but and I say it to my people that, you know, let's try not to be perfect because. Mm-hmm. Perfect gets in the way of excellence. Be excellent at what you do. Be the best you can be. But I do not want perfection uh, because you'll, you'll you'll never reach it. There's always more and more you can do. So so be excellent. And this came out of you know something that my, my mother used to always say, which was um, good, better, best. Never let it rest until your good is better and your better's best. Not perfect, just best. Be the best you can be. Wow. wow, and that's from your mum, in, in between that's when you're given a hard time. <laughs> uh, that, yeah, that well, she was always giving us lessons. She always had buddy saying stuck on the fridge and you'd walk past and here's another lesson she'd cut out of the newspaper or someone, she'd handwrite it and say, read that. So uh, so that was fantastic. Whereas Dad on the other side, and this is also the other thing, he said, mate, 90% of what you worry about won't happen, never happens, all right? And, and, and as a leader, you do worry about lots and lots of things. You've got to say, you know what, it's probably not going to happen. And if it does, well, I've given it enough thought that, uh, that we can avoid it or we can handle it. So, um, so some of those little sayings along the way, you know, I just go back to it. When I'm up at night and I'm sweating and I'm worried and all the rest of it, I think, you know what, 90% is not even going to happen. And yeah. he's right. Yeah. He's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've been an absolute joy. Um to finish with it, and I, I drew in a, a kind of a similarity between you and Andrew Colvin before, but um, your last thing is pretty well one of An- Andrew Colvin's mantras, uh, you know, let's not try not to be perfect. The same, the same thing. <laughs> exactly the same thing. Oh, so I've never met him, but I might have a cup of tea with him one day. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, okay. Thank you, thank you, sir. Uh, Scott, uh, absolute pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I thank you for sharing everything you've shared with us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Scott leaves us with a couple of gems right at the end, and they're just beautiful. And they have um, have a kind of foundation in both his mum and his dad. Scott says towards the end of the interview, let's try not to be perfect. Perfect gets in the way of excellence. Be excellent and be the best you can be. Scott's mum had a saying that apparently was on the fridge in, the local, in, their, in, their, in their home. Good, better, best. Never let it rest until your good is better and your better is best. Not perfect, just best. Be the best you can be, not perfect. That's a pretty good saying. And then a saying that his dad, his dad says, uh, advice that his, his dad gave him all throughout his life, of what we worry about will never happen. Let's stop worrying about it. Until next time, listeners, thank you for listening. And I, I promise we have a real gem coming up in a fortnight's time. Thank you.